No matter how cinematic a film is, all film is nothing more than a form of writing that borrows from other forms of writing. I'm not talking only of adapting plays, books and musicals. I'm not even talking about making a film from an original script conjured up by a talented screenwriter. I'm talking about the signs we see and the sounds we hear. Their combinations create a code that needs to be read. And every code, DNA, equations or software is a form of writing that needs deciphering. Reports are coming in from all over the empire, from all over the world. The government has not yet issued any statement, but there seems to be no question that there actually is a large unidentified object circling the earth at incredible speed. This is Elmer Davis again. We still don't know what it is or where it comes from, but there's something there. It's been tracked around the earth by radar, traveling at a rate of 4,000 miles an hour. This is not another flying saucer scare. Scientists and military men are already agreed on that. Whatever it is, it's something real. Directed by Robert Wise, The Day the Earth Stood Still is a 1951 adaptation of Harry Bates' 1940 short story, Farewell to the Master. There, an alien spacecraft touches down in Washington, D.C. Gordon, Latu, Barada, Nikto. Latu, Barada, Nikto. Something similar, but something very different, occurs in Arrival, Denis Villeneuve's meditative sci-fi mystery, adapted by screenwriter Eric Heiserer from Tom Chang's 1998 condensed fantasy, The Story of Your Life. In both the adaptation and Chang's original, the focus is on two doctors, Louise Banks, who is a linguist, and Gary Donnelly, a physicist, and their efforts to decipher the writings of extraterrestrials who've arrived on Earth. Language is the foundation of civilization. It's glue that holds the people together. It's the first weapon drawn in the conflict. Louise, this is uh, Ian Donnelly. Louise Banks, Ian Donnelly. It's quite a greeting. Yeah, well, you wrote it. Yeah, but it's the kind of thing you write as a preface. Uh, dazzle them with the basics. Yeah, it's great, even if it's wrong. It's wrong. Well, the cornerstone of civilization isn't language and science. Alien visitation stories are nothing new. Steven Spielberg has directed four of them. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T., War of the Worlds, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Christian Niebe, John Carpenter, and Mathis von Heineken Jr. have all, in one way or another, adapted John W. Campbell's novella, Who Goes There, into The Thing. While Jack Finney's The Body Snatcher has been rewritten for the screen, no less than four times. It's face files, it's vague. It's like the first impression that's stamped on a coin. It isn't finished. You're right. There's all the features, but no details, no character, no lines. It's no dead man. But while several of those stories are classics, none of them can boast the literary credentials of Tom Chang. Chang is one of the most celebrated authors working in science fiction, having repeatedly won the two most prestigious awards specific to that genre the Hugo and the Nebula. The Story of Your Life is available free online, and if you read it, it runs for less than 18,000 words, you will understand why he is so highly revered. Chang's beguilingly compact prose takes assumptions and ever so gently turns them upside down. For instance, it is commonly accepted that mathematics and physics are the languages that underpin the universe. But in Chang's fictional cosmos, Gary fails to communicate with the aliens, and instead it is Louise with her local language who succeeds. In other words, Chang asks the question, 
What if mathematics and physics were subjective? Because in his short story, the aliens have an entirely different model of the physical universe that is just as concrete as ours. Following on from that, if physics is subjective, what about time? What if time defies our perception of it, and instead of constantly moving forwards, it is in fact non-linear? Two hours ago, we pulled this audio off a secure channel in Russia. Someone on the science team there was broadcasting wide. In their final session, the aliens said, there is no time. Many become one. I fear we have all been given weapons. If anyone is receiving this, please. It is interesting to compare the different ways in which Chang's story and Villeneuve's film use their own languages to address time. Both versions are narrated by Louise, but in Chang's story, he begins addressing time by blithely switching tenses from present to future to past. The story begins, Your father is about to ask me the question. This is the most important moment in our lives, and I want to pay attention, note every detail. Then, a few paragraphs later, Chang slips into the future tense. That will be in the house on Belmont Street. I live to see strangers occupy both houses, the one you're conceived in and the one you grow up in. And then, just as seamlessly, Chang slides into the past tense. And then I got a phone call, a request for a meeting. I spotted them waiting in the hallway outside my office. They made an odd couple. One wore a military uniform and a crew cut and carried an aluminum briefcase. Now consider this perfect pearl from Chang's story where Louise says, I remember one afternoon when you were five years old, after you have come home from kindergarten, you'll be colouring with your crayons while I grade papers. Past, present and future all rolled unobtrusively into one. The thing about reading something in the past tense is that although the sentence structure does not necessarily change, we can tell by the use of certain words the tense in which the story is now unfolding. But because film is a language in which everything takes place in the present tense, even flashbacks unfold now, it isn't always that easy to figure out whether we are seeing a flashback or not. A strong clue comes in the transition. A character stops what they are doing and looks meaningfully off into the middle distance and the picture dissolves to a different scene. Or, to use another old soul, a character cues it up by saying, As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Those are film writing cliches that we have learned to read. However, because they are easy to read, it is also easy for filmmakers to conceal the transition by way of straight cuts without dialogue cues. Which means that the grammar and vocabulary Villeneuve uses in Arrival, the film's code if you will, is somewhat different. Strewn sporadically throughout the story, we see images of what we are encouraged to accept as flashbacks or analipses of Louise's past, which we read as traumatic. But as the film approaches its third act, we realise that they are not analipses, but prolipses, premonitions of Louise's future. When the images initially appeared, editor Joe Walker repeatedly cut back to Louise and we interpreted her expression as one of grief. But when we realise that what she is seeing are in fact premonitions, we re-evaluate her reaction as one of struggling to interpret what she is seeing. Villeneuve and Walker have been writing a code we thought we understood because of familiarity with a more traditional style of film grammar. That switch is somewhat similar to what Nicholas Rogue did 
when he adapted Daphne du Maurier's short story, Don't Look Now. You're sad. You're so sad and there's no need to be. <sighs> My sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. I've seen your little girl sitting between you and your husband and, and she was laughing. From as early as his first film performance and right on through Walkabout, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Bad Timing and Eureka, Rogue deployed unique editing patterns, queuing up images not exclusively for narrative continuity, but associations of movement, shape and sound to build up visual and sonic mosaics. Innovative as Rogue was, he was in fact developing techniques already explored by the likes of Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard and Alain René in films such as Shoot the Pianist, Pierrot Le Fou and Hiroshima Mon Amour. For Arrival, Villeneuve and Walker, together with sound editor Sylvain Bellemare, who here earned an Oscar for his work, delayed the revelation of the time switch so that it coincided with Louise learning to read not just the alien's writing, but that time does not have a forward compulsion. Which means that by learning the aliens' language, Louise begins to think differently. Now, while Chang inverted several assumptions in his short story, the idea that language can determine the way you think is not one of them. Instead, Chang was alluding to an established theory which he does not cite directly, but in the film, Louise identifies by name. You know, I was doing some, some reading um, about this idea that if you immerse yourself into a foreign language that you can actually rewire your brain. Yeah, Sapphire Wharf hypothesis. Mm. The theory that, um, it's, it's the theory that uh, the language you speak determines how you think. Now, what follows may sound like a detour, but is in fact pertinent to Villeneuve's adaptation of Chang's story. The Sapper-Whorf theory is rooted in polygenism, a theory that sprang up in the 16th century in the wake of European voyagers having newly encountered different civilizations. In the face of these developments, polygenism held that the human race had numerous origins, each of which developed independently of one another. Some 400 years later, American anthropologist Franz Boas travelled deep into northern Canada, where he spent decades immersing himself in the culture of the Yupik and Inuit Eskimo tribes. In 1911, Boas published The Handbook of American Indian Languages, in which he asserted Eskimos have over 300 words for snow. Fascinating as that may sound, it isn't true. Well, it's true only insofar as we in English have nouns, adjectives and adverbs such as lake, river, rain, puddle, swamp, soak, drench, flood, wet, all of which refer to the different states of their root word, water. One of Bo's students, Edward Sapper, took his research and applied it to his own specialty of linguistics. In turn, Sapper's findings influenced his own student, Lee Whorf, who, fascinated by how language spreads and evolves through cultural interaction, then developed his own theory, which he called linguistic relativity. Whorf's idea is that if you speak English or Spanish or Inuit, you will think differently, which means you will behave differently. Considered plausible for a while, Whorf's theory has since been dismissed and revealed for what it is. Descending from polygenism, linguistic relativity holds that different origins bring different languages. That means different thinking, which results in different intelligence, and that spells racial supremacy. We need to sit on this information until we know what it means. 
so we aren't sharing it with our enemies, we have to consider the idea that our visitors are prodding us to fight among ourselves until only one faction prevails. There's no evidence of that. Sure there is. Just grab a history book. The British with India, the Germans with Rwanda. They even got a name for it in Hungary. Worf bases theory on his study of the Native American Hopi tribe. The Hopi are the oldest people in North America, their village in Oraby, northern Arizona being the longest continuously occupied settlement anywhere in the United States. According to Worf, the Hopi language does not differentiate between past, present and future tenses, to which Worf declared, the Hopi people have no expression for, therefore no concept of, time. Another complete hoax. The Hopi people do perceive time, and they perceive it pretty much like everyone else. However, in 1958, MIT student Stuart Chase took Worf's theory as fact and published his own paper in which he argued that because the Hopi people saw time as a process, they were better positioned to perceive time as a fourth dimension. Which might explain why Arrival explicitly cites the Sapir-Whorf theory. The reference opens up the idea that since there might be a fourth dimension, time is not linear, which means the future can impact on the past. Here is a rival screenwriter, Eric Heiserer, being interviewed by Jeff Goldsmith on his Q&A podcast. We went around all the studios and did our pitch. I had my little visual note cards. I pitched with cards. Stills that I think are evocative of what I'm pitching uh, or their specific pieces. They're, it's kind of a mood board more than anything. And uh, when I laid out the cards, I made a circle. And so the last scene paired perfectly with the first scene. And, uh, and we were right back at you know, where, we, where we started. Uh, and all the studios were like, that is really cool. We are never making this film. Okay, so I've been speaking about writing in time. You can write about time, but can you actually write time? Yes, and you can also determine the pace of that time. I'm talking about music. Simple time, such as 2-4, 3-4, 4-4, all of which are divisible by 2. Then you have the compound units divisible by 3, 6-8, 12-8 and 9-4. Then the shifting patterns such as 5-4 or 7-8. The mixed meters of 5-8 and 3-8. And finally, the irrational meters of 3-10 or 5-24. And that brings me to a rival score, composed by the great Johan Johansson. Arrival score, Johansson created a 16-track tape, which he put in a loop, over which he then recorded layer upon layer of piano drones, all at different speeds, and then he slowed them down. From that soundscape, Johansson then brought in his frequent collaborator, Lichens, less famously known as Robert Aikie Aubrey Lowe, who sang not so much a melody Johansson wrote for him, as much as a sequence of notes to which Lichens then provided vocals. Johansson died in February of last year, so let us leave the final words to him, here delivering a masterclass in 2017 at the Yikhlova Film Festival in the Czech Republic. In particular, um, uh, Denis Villeneuve's uh, films, um, who, who I've, I've collaborated with um, uh, 
extensively and and uh, they tend to be scores that that are quite atmospheric you know and they, and they are they are they are more about creating an atmosphere rather than you know centering on on narrative you know and the music is a very important part of creating that that atmosphere and um, and that's, that's why he he's always placed emphasis on you know bringing me in before they start shooting and, and kind of um, absorbing the 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 kind of um, a sense of the atmosphere that he wants to create <laughs> 